Was there a huge Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden? The internet says it's true. Welcome to The Internet Says It's True, where every week we learn something that sounds like it's made up, but it's really true, part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. Welcome back to those regular listeners and Patreon subscribers. And if you're new here, welcome, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. I work hard every week to bring you new topics all the time. My intention is that I give you something to talk about with your friends next time you're hanging out. And this week's is not only interesting and surprising, it's somewhat topical and timely, so it should be something that's pretty easy to bring up as a sort of, hey, did you know this type of thing? If you haven't checked it out yet, go pledge on Patreon to be a supporter of the show. You can join at any financial level that works for you. You can do that at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. And if you don't have the financial ability to do that right now, no worries whatsoever. I totally understand. You can still help support this podcast by going to the Apple Podcasts app and leaving a five-star review along with a couple sentences about the show. Also, be sure to check out the merch on the website. We've now got t-shirts and mugs. Uh, you can find those at theinternetsaysitstrue.com. Now, last week's show was an interesting one, all about the weird dialects out on the Chesapeake Bay Islands, and I hope you enjoyed the quiz with Allison. This week, we're going to New York City to talk about something that happened there, and it comes from Mitch. Hey, Michael, it's Mitch from Columbus. You know, I think you should take a look at the Nazi rallies that happened in New York City back in 1939. I think you might find a few interesting parallels to stuff going on today. Well, uh, Mitch, you're not wrong. There are parallels. And I have heard about this, but studying it this week just made it hit home. Holy crap, this actually happened. It's scary that it happened. It happened out in the open. You know, sometimes when we look back at the history of the lead up to World War II, we sort of see the Nazi party as this underground evil organization. But when you actually look at what was going on, there was nothing underground or surreptitious about the Nazi party at all. They were loud and proud and celebrated by large sections of the public. Also, when we talk about Nazis, I think it's important to give a content warning for this episode. The topics discussed this week will include racism and anti-Semitism, and I'll do my best to treat it with accuracy and a historical viewpoint without censoring what really happened. These are views that were not only preached by what was at the time a major political party, but they are views that were very popular with a lot of people. And we're going to start this story by talking about that peculiar popularity. When a society experiences hardship, history shows us time and time again that political leaders deflect that hardship toward an enemy to blame. In 1929, the hardship was a global economic depression. Just like in the United States, the Depression left millions of Germans unemployed and unsatisfied with the democratic system of the Weimar Republic that had stabilized the country after the First World War ten years ago. The public blamed social democracy and big business. If a German was going to reject social democracy, they had a choice between communism and national socialism. And while communism's argument was a complex one, the national socialists had pointed their finger at a clear enemy. Jewish financiers, big banks, and Bolsheviks. Because of that, and because Hitler was seen by many Germans at the time as powerful and charismatic, the Nazi party rose in popularity. Between the years of 1924 and 1934, the Nazis went from receiving 3% of the vote to 33%. Even after their rise to power, a lot of Germans were still skeptical but the party offered a populist appeal and promoted a nationalism that people liked. They called it Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community. And after a global economic depression, nationalism sounded like a good idea, and it was a rejection of communism. Sadly, even many of those who disagreed with the hateful anti-Semitic views ignored them in favor of seeing a political party build a stronger Germany. By 1936, Germany saw full employment. Of course, many of those jobs were because of the country building up the military strength to prepare for war. The Nazi party saw support in other countries as well. History tells us about their support in Italy and Japan, but we know of other instances of Nazi support around the globe. In Europe, these were sometimes nothing more than an alliance in fear of the Soviet Union. For instance, in Finland, the president made an agreement with Hitler for protection against the Soviet Union should they invade. Even Great Britain, who would eventually be absolutely devastated by German forces during the war, had made an Anglo-German naval pact in the 1930s, 
something that was in violation of the Treaty of Versailles. And while most British despised the Nazi party, there was indeed a large swath of support, mostly in the North, through the British Union of Fascists, led by a member of Parliament, Oswald Mosley. They even changed their name to include National Socialists. They had 50,000 members. They were disbanded in 1940, but there were a handful of smaller groups that supported the Nazis within Britain. Some were funded by Berlin directly. Some were simply aligned with the Nazis' anti-Semitic policies. Many in the country's high society admired Hitler and saw his politics as crucial to defeating communism. Most of these high society folks ended their support as soon as Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia. Even then, during the war, as many as 70 British men and women were convicted of attempting to aid the enemy and hundreds more were rounded up and interned by the British government. Like in Great Britain, there was support for Nazism in America as well. Bradley W. Hart, author of Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's supporters in the United States, argues that the support for Nazis in the U.S. was greater than most Americans remember today. And there were a few different reasons for this. Now, remember the first weeks of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, when there were these extreme right-wing talking heads who were celebrating Russia's strength and denigrating the Ukrainian government? It's still happening today as the war enters its sixth month. Well, similarly, there was a far-right radio personality, Charles Coughlin, who would go on the air and promote Nazi fascist policies and apply them to American life in the 1930s. This guy was a Catholic priest out of Detroit, and he would broadcast these huge anti-Semitic tirades to tens of millions of listeners. In North Carolina, there was a guy, William Dudley Pelly, who started the Silver Legion, known as the Silver Shirts. He grew a group of 15,000 pro-Nazi, anti-Jewish members, mostly because he had convinced them that, quote, Jews were possessed by demons, end quote. It was a Christian nationalist group. This guy was particularly weird. He had developed a whole costume for his clan and even had ambitions of becoming an American dictator like Hitler. There were even American politicians in Washington distributing Nazi propaganda, like Congressman Hamilton Fish III, who was an isolationist and led a scheme to distribute Goebbels' propaganda via U.S. mail, and Senator Robert Rice Reynolds, who made pro-German statements in the congressional record. The German-American Bund, also known as the German-American Federation, started as a group called Friends of New Germany. They were Nazi sympathizers, and they were started by a German immigrant to the U.S. He was given the direction to start this group directly from the deputy Führer of the Nazis, Rudolf Hess. This wasn't a grassroots Nazi support campaign. It was a direct result of Nazi influence. Many of the members of the German-American Bund were of German descent, but some were just anti-Semites. They had a headquarters in New York City, but they had training camps in Wisconsin, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. They publicly opposed and attacked Jewish-American groups, communism, FDR, trade unions, and American boycotts of German goods. They would display the American flag next to the Nazi swastika flag, they would perform their Hitler salute, and they propped up George Washington as their icon, saying that he was the first fascist. Of course, Washington wasn't a fascist. This is the man that turned down serving a third term when he was asked. He didn't want to be a, a dictator or a king. They appropriated his image to make Nazism seem more American. And at one point, this group claimed to have 200,000 members, though historians have disputed that fact. One thing that's indisputable, however, is that this group was powerful enough to fill Madison Square Garden in a huge Nazi rally in 1939. I'll tell you all about that after a quick break. For the last couple weeks, I've been telling you about this company, Alder, New York. They're an inclusive skincare line out of Brooklyn. Their values line up with mine, and I gotta say, I'm a believer. They sent me some samples of stuff, and I actually really enjoy it. Uh, and I'm using their 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 face lotion. So I guess you could say they've they've gotten me to alter my skincare routine. Is that pun as funny as it was last week? No? It's okay. You don't have to take my word for it because editors at Vogue magazine, Harper's Bazaar, GQ, Men's Health, and more have just raved about these products. Allure calls it simple, sleek, and highly effective. And the cool thing is, you know, when you hear about a skincare line out of Brooklyn, you think that's got to be super expensive, but not necessarily. They have things starting at $7.99. It's clean luxury skincare that doesn't have to break the bank. They make skincare products with dermatologist approved ingredients and plant powered actives. 
And because you are listening to this podcast right now, you get 15% off your first order. Go to AlderNewYork.com. That's A-L-D-E-R New York.com. Use promo code INTERNET and you'll get 15% off your first order. Or just use the link in the show notes. I'm John DeSando, host of Back Talk. This podcast is an extension of the long-running, award-winning movie review show, It's Movie Time. Back Talk features additional content and banter with guests about new movies. If you want more insight and information about what's playing now in theaters and online, find Back Talk at the WCBE podcast experience on wcbe.org. You'll be happy you did. Let's get back to our story. When I talked about support for Hitler and the Nazi party in the United Kingdom, I mentioned that most of the support ended when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia. That happened at the end of 1938. But this huge rally in New York City that we're going to talk about happened in February of 1939. It was before Germany invaded Poland, but after they had annexed Czechoslovakia. It wasn't a small affair. For the previous several years, the German-American Bund had run training camps and held Nazi parades in several states. In 1938, we know that they were becoming somewhat sensitive to the overwhelming American opinion of Nazis. Okay, they weren't sensitive to it. I guess we can say that they knew how most Americans felt. We know this because they were careful to point out that by this time, they were not funded by any German relations and they didn't allow actual German Nazis in their ranks. They also formally banned Nazi emblems to be used by the Bund. But I don't know if I believe any of this because we have the giant rally in Madison Square Garden in 1939 as proof that just flies in the face of everything that I just said. As many as 22,000 people attended the rally on February 20 of 1939. Here is some actual audio from that crowd. I pledge undivided allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Before the event, Mayor LaGuardia knew there was going to be a storm of counter-protesters, so he dispatched a force of 1,700 uniformed New York police officers around Madison Square Garden. Inside, 22,000 American Nazis and Nazi supporters gathered. They gave the Nazi salute to the American Nazi color guard walking by in uniform. These were Americans who had drilled at the various camps like the one in New Jersey. German marches played over the speakers. The stage was adorned with a 30-foot-tall image of George Washington, flanked by American flags and swastikas. Fritz Julius Kuhn was a German Nazi activist, the current leader of the Bund, and was the featured guest speaker. He was a veteran of World War I, where he fought for Germany. He addressed the crowd in the uniform of a full German stormtrooper. I'm going to play a little bit of his audio, but I'm going to warn you, this is where you hear a crowd of people applauding blatant anti-Semitism. You all have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail. We, with American ideals, demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first, a social, just, white, gentile ruled United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. As Kuhn said this, Isidore Greenbaum, a young Jewish anti-Nazi protester, stormed the stage attempting to reach the podium and was quickly tackled and beaten by the guards wearing red swastika armbands. They kicked and punched the man on stage and ripped his pants off. Police came in and intervened, and the rally continued. At one point, the journalist and author Dorothy Thompson yelled the word bunk in protest and was escorted out of the rally. 
Outside Madison Square Garden, as many as 100,000 anti-Nazi protesters organized, waving American flags and tearing down Nazi flags and attempting to confront anyone who entered or exited the rally inside. To see one of the overhead shots of this rally, it's shocking to think that there were this many Americans who supported the open and raw anti-Semitism. Whether they knew or didn't know, while that rally was being held in America, Adolf Hitler was finishing construction on his sixth concentration camp in Europe. Here were 22,000 Americans who supported these anti-Semitic views, and these were just the ones that attended the rally. Who knows how many tens of thousands silently supported the cause from around the country. And I think one of the major causes of that was propaganda. It could be spread so easily around the world. Whether it was through film, radio, or newspapers, it was easy for Joseph Goebbels to plant messages internationally especially knowing he had the support of several United States lawmakers. So these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans, had received Hitler's message and agreed with it. Hitler said, quote, and I'm paraphrasing, Nature doesn't desire the blending of a higher race with a lower race. Now I'm going to read you another quote. Here it is, quote, This is why we have always fought. We are willing to mix with one another, but we do not want to become peoples of mixed race, end quote. And that quote wasn't from Hitler, or Goebbels, or from 1939. It was from 2022, and it was said by Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who was a guest speaker last week at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Texas. He received a standing ovation from the crowd of conservatives there. Of course, I'm not the first to draw this comparison. CPAC has been widely mocked for promoting anti-American and isolationist views that sound more like something from 1930s Germany. Americans heard a sitting U.S. congresswoman call herself a Christian nationalist on stage and heard speakers promote Trump's America First tagline, the same type of nationalist, isolationist sentiment of the German-American Bund. In fact, a major Nazi sympathizing group that came about in 1940 was called the America First Committee. This was a group that showed up after the German-American Bund sort of dissolved, so America First, as a slogan, has a dirty past that directly links to present-day politics. And as we saw in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, there are still plenty of Americans out there today spreading this same brand of hatred. At that event, and at the U.S. Capitol attack in 2021, people were spotted carrying Nazi swastika flags, some wore t-shirts that said Camp Auschwitz and 6MWE, an acronym for 6 million wasn't enough. With his anti-immigrant America First rhetoric, former President Trump riled up the new alt-right and fueled their anti-Semitism. White Christian supremacy in the United States is still alive and well. And instead of newspapers and film strips, they're receiving their messaging from the internet and hyper-partisan news entertainment television. Sometimes people ask, how could that have happened? How could Hitler have risen to power with those types of views? The 1939 rally at Madison Square Garden is proof. It could happen then, and it could happen now. All it takes is an angry faction of the public looking for someone to blame for their hardships, some exciting-sounding slogans, a leader to help them along the way, and for good people to do nothing. It's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend. Today, we're calling International Magic Award winner Eric Tate. Eric is a comedian and a magician, and he just returned from Quebec, where he represented the United States in the world's most prestigious magic competition. He came home with an award. What is going on, Eric? Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm good, man. You uh, you made us all proud. Now, tell us about what this was. Uh, you and I know what FISM is, but the listeners don't. Many of them know what FISM is. So maybe we should yeah. start out with what FISM stands for. It's uh, it stands for Federation Internationale Society de Magique. Uh, it's very long and very French. Um, <laughs> it's uh, the FISM is sort of an umbrella organization for all of the other major organizations out there, like the Academy of Magical Arts, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, the Magic Circle, the Association of Japanese Professional Magicians, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's like there's 
tons and tons of member bodies that join FISM. And FISM basically conjures itself into existence once every three years to hold the world championships of magic. Uh, and uh, and that's what I competed at. Um, you, whenever you see it in the newspapers, it's typically referred to as the Olympics of magic, which it very much is. Um, uh, everyone just sort of calls it that. Um, but the the actual Olympics get kind of uh, uh, irritated <laughs> when people call things the Olympics of. So well, sure, the, because you so don't have to go, it, you don't have to do drug testing. Exactly. Officially, it's the World Championships of Magic, uh, but it is okay to think of it as the Olympics of Magic. And I competed in the card magic category and came home with third prize. Third in the world is not a bad place to be. Um, and uh, some uh, a friend of mine did a little bit of research and uh, made me feel extra special uh, because as it turns out, uh, in my category, there are only four Americans to ever make the podium in card magic. And uh, wow. the last, and I am the first card, uh, card magician from America to make the podium in 20 years. Whoa. So it's been a long time. 20 years ago. Time. So who was the most recent? Would it be anyone uh, that we recognize the name? Yeah, uh, it was actually Gregory Wilson. Um, really? Gregory Wilson won two back-to-back -back, uh, prizes in card magic. He took third and then he took second. Prior to him uh, in the 90s, Daryl uh, okay. won first prize in card magic. And then the first American was John Cornelius, uh, okay. the John Cornelius of pen through anything thing. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think of Gregory Wilson as a card magician. I think of him as a as an illusionist. Um, you no, know, no, like like on the spot, Gregory Wilson. Oh, Gre I, okay. So Greg Wilson, Greg, is what, Greg yes. Wilson, Greg. Yes. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, now I now I see that a little bit better. I I guess yeah. they're both Gregory Wilsons. There's two Gregory yeah. Wilsons in magic. There are also two Michael Kents in magic. I got an email today for someone looking for no it was a voicemail today for someone looking for the other one and he's he's probably i want to say he's in his 60s or 70s and down in florida hasn't performed in a long time okay. and uh, so i guess you know in that way i'm lucky that they did no other eric tates with a at least not with a k there's uh there's a couple of other erics um there's no other eric tates that i'm aware of there is an eric tate who is an english footballer uh, of some note from the oh. late sixties, and he he has a Wikipedia page, and I don't messes with your um, uh, your Google results. I am I, I re the only reason I do any of this stuff is to one day have a Wikipedia page, <laughs> and uh, so I've I've had, got a New York Times article, but not a Wikipedia page. It's it's starting to get irritating. Well, now I, that you're uh, you're an international award winner, you should be able to to be on Wikipedia. I'm not sure why you're not. Uh, let's get into this, this, uh, first question here. Now for this first question, Eric, we're going to play for a joke. So if you get it wrong, okay. you have to tell me a joke. If you get it right, I'll tell you one. Okay. Here is your question. In right. 1939, 22,000 Nazi sympathizers organized a huge rally. Where was it? A Madison square garden in New York, B the Royal Albert hall in London or C red square in Moscow. Uh, sorry, the, the year was 18? 1939. 1939. So this I is the year that uh, Hitler invaded Poland. I think this is Madison Square Garden. You think correctly. It is Madison Square Garden. I, uh, I believe that I actually saw a photo of this today. It has been going around today. Uh, in fact, Ken Weber shared a photo of it, a tweet about this yesterday. And I said, this is what my next episode's about. Uh, yeah. and, and the reason it's been going around, I think, is because there have been a lot of comparisons drawn to CPAC. Yeah. Yeah. That was that. Oh, that was that was pretty rough. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> I owe you not, a joke. Not, not so good. No, no there was some roughness good. in there. And, you know, yeah. like they put on the screen, we are domestic terrorists. Like they put that on one of their video screens during the conference. They're, what they're trying to do with domestic terrorism is make mm -hmm. it into like what they did with deplorables. Mm -hmm. Where they're like, oh, this this word hurts us. Let's turn it around and make it not hurt us by pretending that we like it now. I so. I don't un like you know I get trying to own a word that is used as a slur, but like that's a tough putt with te terrorist domestic terror. I mean that's you know good. You're, you're a not for repurposing effort, that word. A for effort, kiddo. <laughs> I'm trying to find you a joke. Um, a man goes to the zoo and carefully positions himself close enough to one of the camels so he can drop a straw squarely on its back. The camel turns his head. Wrong straw. I don't, do you get that? I don't get that. Yeah, I do, because it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was the wrong straw. 
That's horrible. Comedy is always better when you explain it. (laughs) Well, okay, so this is my fault because what I'm doing is um, for the last few weeks, I've stopped just finding jokes before we record and just getting them out of old bad joke books. And oh, man. so, yeah, you, some you of these should, are really you bad. should get, invest in a copy of truly tasteless jokes. I should, but um, this I try to keep this this podcast somewhat clean, um, not just like full of like angry, racist <laughs> Polish jokes. Can't do those, especially on an on an episode entirely about anti-Semitism. No, uh, okay. Definitely. All right, you know, it's fair. it's bad enough. I'm inviting a comedian on and, you know, and, and doing a lighthearted quiz after talking about such an interesting or such a uh, 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 not interesting is not the word such a. Um, potentially fear infuriating uh topic a triggering topic congratulations on on this this monumental achievement in your art and craft let's talk about american nazis um <laughs> thank I- you <laughs> well you know once you once you go past 100 episodes uh yeah. you know actually this has been on my list for a long time this i because I, this is one of those that fits the mold of the podcast the mold of the podcast being Here's something that sounds like it's made up, but it ag- absolutely happened. It's actually true. Um, it is. It is sort of fascinating looking at the history of the Nazi Party in America yeah. and in England, because, oh, like, oh, especially yeah. like the King of England at some point was a Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. and this was like far before they started like loading people into like train cars and gas chambers. When sure. they were just like, "Hey, these guys have some good ideas," and then everyone was like, "Whoa, hang on, uh, yeah. this is oh no." But you know, when you look at the the timeline of it. So uh, what I found was a lot of the sympathetic organizations, at least in the UK, started seeing the light around 1938 when when uh, Hitler annexed Czechoslovakia. Right. He had not invaded Poland yet. But, you know, when this Nazi rally happened in New York City, they had already taken Czechoslovakia like it was, you know, it was already bad news bears like. There were 100,000 people outside of Madison Square Garden, anti, anti-Nazi protesters, uh, Antifa, if you will, in 1929, or 1939, excuse me, there were, there were 100,000 out there. So people knew that this was wrong, and yet there are 22,000 people uh, doing the Nazi salute inside this thing. And, the, you know, and I was talking to my wife about this today, and she's like, well, was it before people really knew like, how bad they were? And I was like, the main speaker was just talking about, you know, like how awful Jew- Jewish people were like it was it wasn't hidden at this point you know <laughs> there wasn't there was now also oh, I didn't I didn't realize that it was it was that open at it was full-on anti-semitic at, at this point and, and really from wow. the very beginning when you look at what um the a lot of the part there was a, a member of parliament uh mm-hmm. who who was started a, a fascist support group in a support group is not the right word. There was a member of par- parliament yeah. who was basically, he promoted fascist ideas and it was all very anti-Semitic right out in the open because they saw, you know, just like any time that people are going through yeah. financial and economic hardship, they saw the Jewish people as their enemy and as the the people to blame. So it's just like, it's amazing to me that people just throughout history have like continually been like uh everything is awful and if we just blame this group of people everything will be fine let's just like yeah as though killing a large group of people has ever been the economic solution to everything right like we've tried that over and over again and it's it like n- at no point have we ever murdered someone and they've just turned into doubloons like a, like <laughs> like Mario jumping on a turtle in in, uh, in Sonic the Hedgehog. No, uh, no, it's just like it just it never happens. It, no one ever turns into money. Um, I I can't understand why that continues. It's always just hate a group of people if you're having economic hardship, and I don't get it. That's that's true. Um just realized i didn't have us on a two shot for there we go that's better uh yeah so now oh, the pa- oh i forgot you have like a patreon who like looks at this I should yeah pa- yeah so that's okay they can just listen to you for the first 10 minutes of this five minutes of this and now we can actually so if you're on patreon watching this you can actually see eric's face um so you can do that at patreon.com slash michael kent not only do you get that you get every episode a week early and ad free enough of that plug let's move on to question two uh, and for this one, we're going to play for an audio Easter egg on your podcast, which is the Penguin Magic Podcast, 
So if you get it wrong, you've got to say a phrase of my choosing on the show somewhere next time you record. If you get it right, I'll say that phrase on the next episode of this show. And here's the phrase. The phrase is, quote, I don't care where you're from. Corn nuts are like currency. Okay. All right. I think I can get that one past the Penguin Magic sensors. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could make it relevant somehow. I, I, I assume. I'll be interviewing, uh, I'll be having like a, 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 a three-person interview between Jason Sudeikis, me, and Teller. And I'll just insert that right into the middle. <laughs> does Jason Sudeikis do magic? He does. He actually, he was in a GQ magazine. Uh, they were like, what's your everyday carry? And he name checks Penguin Magic because he carries, uh, because Jason Sudeikis carries the uh, Tally Ho Elite uh, deck produced by Penguin Magic. So he deck. has a deck of cards in his pocket all the time. He, uh, he he's done some interviews and he's talked about how he like learns little card tricks to show cast members uh, in between takes on uh, set, the set of um, uh, Ted Lasso. And uh, and he learns those at penguinmagic.com. Do you personally carry a deck of cards with you everywhere in a social setting? I, I do. Uh, because my my status as a world famous uh, magician and icon in the magic industry has required has me required. to carry a magic trick at all times. So I used to, I would say I did that when I was in college, probably because I was like, maybe because I was more social then than I am now. But now uh, I do have everyday carry magic with me, but never cards. I always have coins in my pocket um, for a uh, silver copper routine. And now lately I've been uh, having the keys in my pocket. The, the, um, from Keymaster? From key, by yeah, Craig Petty. Key, the, yeah, the Keymaster, the Craig Petty Keymaster I've been carrying on my keychain. I carry it on my phone, so I have R digit on my phone. Which, yeah. if you're if you're a magician, you're listening to this, and you're not doing R digit, you're a fool. That thing is amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I, I usually carry on a deck of cards, but mostly because the deck of cards is like a fidget toy for me, and so like I'm not even doing magic or yeah. like having focus practice. It's just uh, something to keep my hands busy. Sure, I I, I totally get that. I do the th- same thing on airplanes. There's always a, a deck of cards in the in the bag. Um, and, and on airplanes good. though, it gets too dry, and the deck gets a click. Ah, that's an interesting, that's a good point. I, I wouldn't say I ever perform with the cards that are in my bag, though. They're mostly, is, they just keep, they just keep. And I, and you know what I do is I work on, this is really nerdy magic stuff, but uh, I, I work on the Tamara's stuff uh, because that's the thing that keeps my brain active and never have I ever used that in actual performance. No, never. I've never even bothered to memorize it because I always just look at it and go, I'm, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I did the whole brute memory thing with it. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, let's get out of the because there are a lot of people listening who don't care about the, the magic thing. Um, they're at least the, not in the, in the weeds magic stuff. So we'll move on with the next uh, question here. So again, our stakes are, I don't care where you're from. Corn nuts are like currency. Here's your question. The America First Committee was a Nazi sympathizing group in America with as many as 800,000 members. This was after the German-American Bund, which held this big rally. So this was like they started the year after that. And they preached isolationism, and many of its leaders held, held anti-Semitic and pro-fascist views. Who was their most notable spokesperson? Was it A, Clark Gable, B, Charles Lindbergh, or C, Jack Warner of the Warner Brothers? Ooh, um, I want it to be Clark Gable, but uh, I I have a vague memory that Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi Nazi sympathizer. So I'm going to go with Lindbergh. Lindbergh. You are correct. It is Charles Lindbergh. Yes. Who was a Nazi sympathizer. He was an isolationist. At one point, he gave an anti-Semitic speech in Des Moines, Iowa, that was called Anti-American and which the Roosevelt White House compared to speech coming straight out of Berlin. Yeah. Um, you can find clips, for, or not, cl- uh, not audio clips, but you can find um, excerpts from that speech. It's pretty gross. Pretty and correct gross. me if I'm wrong, but like a lo- didn't he become like super isolationist like after his baby was stolen? Oh, I don't know if that had anything to do with his, his views or not. But, uh, you know, I can't remember if that happened like before or after. Um, but I but I do have these like vague memories of looking up stuff for a trivia show that I used to host with Nikki Winkleman called The Quiz Box. Yes. And, and being like, let's let's have some fun stories about Charles Lindbergh because Lindbergh, baby. And then uh, and then I was like, oh, oh, no, we can't we can't say any of these things in a room full of people. Wah, Nazis. Yeah. yeah, he was a Nazi. Good pilot, though. 
Uh, yeah. Moving on. Question three for this I mean, question. You know what? If there is anything you can say about Nazis, is it that they were wonderful pilots? <laughs> good, good in the air. Good at that. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get canceled. Now. I'm this so sorry, great. everyone listening. That, this, that's what I ask for when I, you know, when I'm bringing on a comedian at the end of a, a serious episode. <laughs> I've done this to myself several times, but they understand. The people who are listening understand it's a serious topic. But we, you know, I look forward to like Marjorie Taylor Greene editing this entire episode and right. taking me extremely out of context. Eric Tate is super into Nazis and talks about how wonderful they are at flying. <laughs> One time I got canceled on Twitter because there was a guy who came out with a like an anti right wing deck of cards. Oh, it was like a deplorables deck of cards. Yeah. And I guess the artist's name was Michael Kent it has nothing to do with me. And then oh. so people started Googling me and saying, look at this hack comedian magician. Uh, of course, he's got a blue check on Twitter because all the liberals do. And and, you know, don't go to his shows. And I still yeah. have some of the screenshots I took from that. I was like three or four years ago. Um, I but I had somebody uh, like who was ferociously attacking me on Twitter over and over again. They were like, he's he's a shitty magician. Sorry. He's a terrible magician. He's so bad. He does magic for a living. He's got to be off. And like in the middle of that, I was just like winning award after award and being on TV show after TV show and oh, having like care. really important people say like really wonderful things about me. And I was sure. just like, like you can, you can Those... There's so many other things to attack me for, but like, <laughs> I, I literally have like piles of evidence that this is the, not correct. It is. The, uh, those same people tell Patton Oswald what a horrible washed up comedian he is on Twitter. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it means now he's nothing. The, he's the voice actor of the most important bird on Netflix, right? Now. <laughs> Let's move All on. Right, um, third this question. question. Yeah. We're going to play for a, tell me what to Google sticker. So that was okay. the original name of this podcast. And, I have uh, won so many of these stickers <laughs> and you've never given it to me michael kent this is what i do i promise uh, i promise so many stickers i, I under deliver it's my thing when it comes to stickers ever see michael kent and you think you're going to see me within the next fortnight be sure to get obtain a sticker for it. he's holding my stickers hostage i have no excuse with you because you're in the same city i am uh and uh i you don't I, even have to mail it to me you no. could just leave it underneath an oak tree at goodale park <laughs> stick it to the oak tree and then you can just tell people that's where your sticker resides. For this question, uh, okay, here it is. Madison Square Garden, that's the setting for this week's episode, also was the home to what iconic moment? Was it A, the Elvis Presley comeback special in 1968, mm -hmm. B, the David Copperfield Tornado of Fire special in 2001, Ooh. or C, Marilyn Monroe singing to President Kennedy in 1962? Okay, so I don't think I, I so Monroe singing to Kennedy, I think was like that was like a White House correspondence dinner, like not the correspondence dinner. That was like a that was like a Washington thing. Um, so I don't think it was that. And I want to say Tornado of Fire was they had to like build a big special thing because um, like, I don't think excuse me, I don't think they could do Madison Square or Madison Square Garden with the tornado of fire just because I've seen that special and that thing is it's it's insanity um what was the first one again the first one was the Elvis Presley comeback special in 1968 ooh i think i'm going to go with the Elvis Presley comeback special just because i'm pretty sure on the other two and i don't know anything about Elvis also, can we go back to the point where I was like, I wish Clark Gable was a Nazi. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why I want that to be a thing. I don't actually want anyone to be a Nazi, but I kind of want Clark Gable to be a Nazi now. Um, yes. so, in the world hey, of distinctive mustaches, he's got he's got yeah. one. Um, in, the, in, the, in the world of delightful Nazis, <laughs> I want it to be Clark Gable. Uh, it, a final answer. The answer uh, is C. Marilyn Monroe sang to President Kennedy in 1962. It was uh, it was actually a 45th birthday celebration held at MSG. It was attended by more than 15,000 people. Uh, mm. And it happened, I believe, like eight days after his 45th birthday. The David Copperfield Tornado of Fire special did film one scene, just the Tornado of Fire ending in New York on one of the piers. 
yeah. but the actual rest of the episode where he did Portal and he did all the other stuff was in a um, Coliseum in Memphis, actually. Yeah. And the Elvis Presley comeback special was a studio special. So that happened in a, a soundstage in, uh, in L.A., I believe. Hollywood. Oh, oh no i don't get to add to my additional collection of stickers no, just the backlog you'll get some back pay of stickers uh so you are currently two for three in your answers um yeah. now when you competed at fism yes. did you ha- after you were done and you got yeah. it and you took that breath when you were done did you have a feeling that you had a chance of being the, on the podium um the so the answer was uh, I had no idea because there were still there were still like quite a few card acts to go and some and the so the, the it was like it was five days of competition like they started on or no sorry four days they started on Tuesday and then I was on the last day which is was Friday so there were four days of competition for the magician for the close up and there uh, up to that point I was pretty confident I'd already seen the first place guy perform and he just like became the darling of the convention. I mean, he he absolutely caught fire. And I mean, he was great. Like his magic was amazing, but he was just really charming and likable and everybody loved his act. And there was like just the right amount of inside baseball. His name is Marco B. He's a wonderful magician. Um, but uh, I was like pretty confident that I could, I could place, but not quite sure. But by the end of the day, like the last day of competition for close-up was like Shudagawa, Simon Cornell. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I think Air One. Uh, it was just, it was. There was uh, a couple of Swedish uh, magicians who were really wonderful. Um, it was a murderer's row. Like yeah. the last day of competition, it was just uh, like there, there be dragons. It was full of monsters. Do they and, intersperse card magic competition with close up with with stage and everything else, or is it sort of like? Here's all our card guys. Here's all our close-up guys, guys and girls. Well, so stage and close-up are held in different rooms. So okay. the stage competition was in a room that held 3,000 people, and the close-up magicians were in a room that held over 1,000 people. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah. So, but there was video support. Okay. Um, and uh, the stage and close-up are divided into major and minor. Uh, or sorry, are they're divided into their own sort of separate divisions. So, like, you're not going to compare stage magicians to close-up magicians. They're right. just incompar- They're not comparable at all. Right. Uh, however, underneath the guise of those major, um, uh, those major divisions are sort of smaller divisions where it's even further granulized. So in close-up, they have micro, which is general close-up, uh, parlor, and then cards. And cards is its own category. In stage, they've got general stage magic, manipulation, illusion, comedy, and mentalism. And so uh, the in the different rooms, they would then mix up what you were about to see. So you would never see like two card guys back to back or two mentalists back to back or two sure. comedy pieces back to back. They would they would sort of rotate through them so that you were seeing lots of different stuff. Uh, and no and no one was like really being directly compared to one another by the general audience, even though the judges were. Um and so by the by the time it got to me, a lot of acts had gone, but there was still like four acts to go. And I sort of looked at who was left and I was like, oh, man, these are these people are really good. And so it, like after I got off stage, I was like pretty confident it was like the best I'd ever done that particular piece. But it was I was like, you know, someone could come like there's still three acts that could come along and just destroy everybody. Um and so fortunately that didn't happen. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody was wonderful. I mean, there to was the, I mean, to the non magicians listening right now. They are, had no idea how, uh, nerdy this art form is and how, yeah. you know, like that those distinctions even exist, let alone their, their gradients within each, yeah. each. I mean, it was, segment. I saw the best magic I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, one of the most magical things I saw there was I, I, you need to see video of this or this act live because what I'm about to tell you doesn't make any sense. But I watched a Belgian chase a tea towel around the stage for eight minutes and it looked like a friggin' Pixar movie. It That's was awesome. It, it was the most like I watched this. It was a crumpled piece of paper that like formed legs and arms and ran around and danced and like climbed wow. stuff. And it was it was crazy. It looked like a Pixar movie. That's amazing. And what you are ex- imagining in your head right now is exactly what it was but it was real. Um, <laughs> and there was, I mean, it was just, everything was like that where it was just, it was all of the magic was just 
amazing. I mean, it's the world championships of magic. It's sure. the best magic in the world. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, for this next question, we're going to play for an admission of our favorite and least favorite plots in magic. Right. So okay. for those non-magicians, a plot in magic would be uh, basically the idea of a trick. Um, yep. You know, the, the, the much like a, a movie has a plot, a beginning, a middle and an end, uh, a magic routine has the same. So, you know, we, we have a, a bunch of different plots from the last three, four hundred years. Um, mm -hmm. All of us have a, a favorite and a least favorite. If you get it wrong, uh, you'll tell me yours. If you get it right, I'll tell you mine. But most likely, we'll probably just tell each other anyway. Yes. There okay. is an internet saying that the longer an internet argument goes on, the more likely the probability becomes of one of the parties using a Nazi or Hitler comparison. Yes. What is this known as? Is it oh. A, the Nazi rule, B, Godwin's law, or C, Julius's law? It's Godwin's law. You are correct. It's Godwin's Law. It was promulgated by the American attorney and author Mike Godwin in 1990. He referred to it specifically on Usenet groups. Yes. Uh, and so it's, that's one of those terms that has stayed with us all the way through chat rooms into Twitter and social media and everything else. Yes. It's, uh, I, I, I love that I just like knew that immediately. I was like, oh, yeah. this is, I thought you were going to be like, What's, what shows up? And I was going to be like, Nazis. And then you were like, <laughs> what is it called? And I was like, hell yeah, I know this. <laughs> it's uh. Yeah, and I've heard it different. So when I looked this up, it was, you know, the the likelihood of any internet, internet argument resulting in a Nazi comparison. The way that I've heard it was the first person to compare the other person to a Nazi or Hitler loses the has lost the argument. That's sort of how I've always heard that. But but yeah, I'm, that's I'm, Godwin's law. I'm pretty sure that a mathematician has actually figured out like what the like how long an argument has to be for it to be there's like a there's a there is a a equation that will sure. determine the likelihood of nazis being brought up i'm i'm like i'm 85 percent certain that that equation exists and that i've seen it probably it probably does it probably does you are doing very well you're three for four there's only one question left and this one's for all the marbles if you get this wrong i'm banning you from the show you'll never be asked on again never have another chance to win a sticker Okay. Here it is. Now that you're an international award-winning magician, what mm -hmm. will be your next goal in magic? Uh, so I was actually talking about that on my podcast today. <laughs> Nick Lacapo is taking over the uh, the Penguin Magic podcast for a week, to, so we can talk about FISM. And uh, I I do privately have a goal that I'm not sharing because I don't want to breathe it out into the universe. But three or four people know what this goal is. Um, and there's no real time limit on it. Why not so, share it here and five or six could know what it is? Because uh, I, I, I'm not ready to breathe it into I understand. that thing. However, uh, I do have an expressly stated goal that I'm going to uh, that I'm uh, I have been openly talking about, which is um, I'm the first American in 20 years to be on that podium for card magic. And uh, as of right now, I'm an anomaly and I don't think I should be an anomaly. I think I should be a tradition. And so what I want to do is support future competitors uh, in this. Um, there's a lot of talk this year that at FISM, that this is the first time in FISM's 70-year history that's ever been to North America. Yeah. And people were wondering, why weren't there more um, North Americans? Part of that is that we don't have many FISM body organizations in North America that can submit competitors, which is, there's not a lot I can do about that. But there is a lot I can do about you know, making sure that other competitors are interested, uh, prepared, know the system to get uh, to get invited and know what to expect when they get there. And so I have basically put out there over and over again, if a magician is interested in competing seriously at higher levels, I'm interested in talking to them, you know, can't guarantee anything, but I can get you ready. And so I'm, I'm actively looking for the next slate of competitors from North America to go to FISM Italy, which is in 2025. That's fantastic. I appreciate that's it's by the way, it's a right answer. So I'm happy to have you on the, the podcast. But uh, I love the support not only of the magic community, but you also supported your local community here. All of the artistic yeah. choices you made with your routine that you took to Quebec were from local central central ohio artists from your wardrobe to the music yeah. to the art direction to everything and, and i think that's awesome um when oh, you can support local artists so thank you so much for for joining me today eric uh i can't wait to to see you perform again sometime if you want to see eric perform go to erictate.com that's 
E-R-I-K, <clears throat> excuse me, E-R-I-K-T-A-I-T dot com. Um, and you can also see his socials there. Uh, also his, uh, his schedule, wherever he's going to perform. Go see him uh, in, yep. when he's near you. And uh, do you have anything else you want to plug for us? Uh, no, just the Penguin Magic Podcast. I talk to all of your favorite magicians. We have an episode that's coming out soon or when this airs, it will have already been out about uh, the road to Fism. Uh, every all the crazy stuff that happened uh, on the way to it, um, like my table not making it and then being Oof. you know being lost and found. Uh, the Penguin Magic Podcast is the best place to find me. And then uh, the only other thing to know is that if you are a magician or you're interested in uh, doing more magic, uh, if you go to penguinmagic.com, we carry all of the uh, all of the best magic tricks. Uh, we carry all of the magic tricks, but also all of the best ones. Uh, and pay attention to our Instagram and our Facebook because we go live all the time to talk to new magicians and uh, get them interested in magic or even like I do a card jam every Monday. So we work on like really basic sleight of hand uh, and for it's for everybody. So we want more people interested in magic and engaging with the hobby. And uh, Penguin Magic's a great place to do that. That is all for this week. Thanks to Mitch for the show topic and to my friend Eric Tate for being my guest. Here's a kid who would kick your ass if you went to a Nazi rally. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. To listen to episodes ad-free and a week early, support us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Kent. If you learned something just now that you didn't already know, go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That helps us a ton, because that's how the algorithm works. I don't know what an algorithm is, but just do it! See you next week for a brand new episode of The Internet Says It's True! The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make this show possible. Dallas Ray, Sean Brown, Bryce Swansing, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, and the show's official Emperor Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17, USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent. <laughs>